I know it's half term and uh, quite a number of people away. I haven't deliberately chosen half term when everyone's away to do this rather controversial talk. Well, I don't think it's controversial, but it's certainly uh, intensely uh, charged with emotion. Um, So we're going to look at today is, is the Christian church sexist? (laughs) So uh, why don't you turn to your neighbour and just answer that question, and then we'll all go home. (laughs) What is the answer, just quickly? The answer is yes and no. (laughs) Okay, yes and no. Uh, but let's not, uh, so that, that's it, you go now. <laughs> let's uh, try and unpack it. I went to the um, uh, University of Gloucestershire CU event. They did a, a thing called Grill the Preacher, which is fun to be at. There's quite a number of people um, there. Uh, probably over half the people there would describe themselves not as Christians. And uh, what was really interesting, and I've done these events for off and on for different times over years, for quite a while, and the, one of the things that, that always strikes me is uh, how the attitude of the room has changed in 20-odd years that I've been doing this. Uh, and it used to be that if you do a, a something like that where people ask you the kind of big objections, a bit like we're doing with this series, people ask you those big objections, they generally thought, well, never mind, you know, Christians are rather sad people. Um, but now Christians have become the bad people. And that is a big change in the room. I remember when I was a student at, at, at what that, it wasn't the university then, it was something far more humble, uh, St. Paul's College and tra- teacher training. Um, uh, basically, we were, Christians were looked on as those kind of sad people that didn't really know how to do life. Um, and my response to that was, because I, could, I felt I could dance like Michael Jackson and drink two pints, I th- they thought it was okay. Obviously, after two pints, anyone thinks they can drink like, dr- dance like Michael Jackson. But, you know, I, I, was kind of, I felt I was okay because I used to go out and um, got the pub and club, and that was a time when most Christians didn't do that. That was kind of a very sinful thing to do. Um, but, but actually, I was just, most of the time, I guess people on my course just thought, well, I was just kind of that sad Christian, really, however much, however hard I tried to be uh, cool and in touch. I'm still trying, but anyway... Um, but now, if you tell somebody in your workplace or at school, I don't know how it is really at schools particularly, but I know uh, when I told people uh, when I was teaching last two, three years ago, three years ago, that I was a Christian, I guess that the feeling was that you were going to be uh, probably anti-gay uh, and probably and most definitely sexist uh, and anti-women. And those are the big things, and it's really, really an interesting one now that um, most people would expect the... Uh, that Christians to be sexist, that have a view of what the world is like, and they'd um, they'd think that Christians are sexist. So the two things I'm going to do this week and next week, and then I'm away for a couple of weeks. But uh, this week is is the church sexist, and next week is why does God care who I sleep with? Isn't the church sexist? I guess interesting. Let's just do some definitions. Sexism is defined as prejudice, stereotyping, or discrimination typically against women on the basis of their sex or gender. So a sexist attitude is a belief that a person of one sex or gender is intrinsically too superior to a person of the other sex or gender. And feminism is the kind of campaigning response to that, is the advocacy, say that for me, thank you, of women's rights on the ground of equality of the sexes. So in that sense... The, the, the first question is, does sexism exist? And uh, do we have sexist attitudes? And is feminism, 
feminism a good thing? I would say yes to all of those things. Sexism does exist. Uh, We have sexist attitudes. And in that sense, feminism as the advocacy of women's rights on the grounds of equality of the sexes is a good thing. Yes? We all, hopefully we're all there, aren't we? Some of you think, what? Church is supposed to say, no, we're all in favour of sexual stereotyping. No, we're not at all. Sexism is real. I found this front page from the independent newspaper. It's National's Women's Day. You can't read the text, but let me give you some of the things that are mentioned on that front page. It says, this is your life if you are a woman. Globally, this is some shocking statistics. Globally, about one in three women will be beaten or raped during their lifetime, most commonly by their partner. One in three. 1.2 million are trafficked into slavery every year. You can do the maths of this. 80% of those are girls, and 80% of those are sexually trafficked. That's eight, nine hundred thousand girls under the age of 12 every year are trafficked. That is a sexist issue. Oh, this is awful. 130 million women are living today have undergone FGM, female genital mutilation. Horrific. 28,000 women in UK schools, kids in UK schools are in danger of FGM. And actually, I was just hearing on the radio as I was coming into church this morning, uh, politician talking about the uh, he's been active in campaign about uh, women who've been subject to conflict related violence. I know that, what's her name? Angelina Jolie has been campaigning about that. I tried to find out some statistics on this. I stopped counting at, at five conflicts and I'd got over three million. Women are enforced rape, enforced sexual slavery, prostitution, forced pregnancy, sterilisation. It shocks me that 15-year-old girls from Bethnal Green would go to Islamic State with their reputation of how they deal with women. So that's just violence. But what about this? What about social and economic discrimination? 1% of the land in the world is owned by women. 99% is owned by men. 70% of of the 1.2 billion people living in the world in poverty are women. So it's about a fifth of the world living in poverty, just slightly less than a fifth of the world living in poverty, and 70% of those are women. In part-time jobs in the UK, so if you have a a woman with a part-time job in the UK, you earn on average 42% less than your male counterpart. On full-time jobs, it's only 15%. Only. In the EU, chief executives of major companies, only 3% are women. And in the national leaders of political leaders, or heads of state, political heads of state, not counting the Queen, but political heads of state, 12 out of 191 are women. That's real, isn't it? That is real. If you're a woman, that is the world you live in. And that's real. And in the end, you should feel, whatever your views on feminism and sexism, you should feel those stats are shocking. Yes? And so in that sense, it's interesting as we tread into this, we all in that sense should be advocates of women's rights on the ground of equality of the sexes. However, society, for thousands of years, and the church 
for thousands of years has often been, mostly been, on the wrong side of that. We have. But what's interesting is over the last 50 years, so I'm talking, you know, my lifetime, over the last 50 years, what's happened is society has gone on a massive change on its view of, of, of women's rights. And the church has made some changes. Some of those changes are good. Some of those changes question, are they good? But actually, I know that network of churches that this church traditionally came out of uh, we, we, the group of churches was Colonial Frontiers. When I first joined it, we were sexist. I remember sitting in the uh, front room of the leader of the church. He would be—he was shocked that a woman would lead worship. Remember, what a woman leading worship in the, in that time? The best that a woman could hope for is to make the tea. I know Sue made the tea today. I really should have arranged a bloke to make the tea. Harold, can you make the tea? You know, but, but the best a bloke, uh, a woman could do, uh, hope for is to make the tea or do the kids' work. So what's happened in the Christian church, New Frontiers and other churches, we're all guilty, all guilty. Women have been unnecessarily sidelined and silenced. I remember that when I first started to go to church, women had to wear a headscarf before they could speak. Now there's some Bible work to do on that, but we haven't time to do this. is a big topic. I'm just trying to provoke you one way and then pull you back the other way. Okay, women's gifts have been denied, unable to preach, unable to lead worship, unable to lead a small group. Um, that, and even what I found is that the emphasis of, of verses that were studied, most of the verses that were talked about were in favour of male leadership and the ones about equality weren't talked about. We didn't speak about servant leadership and cross-shaped, self-giving lives. We talked about authority, and that authority was generally the authority of the clergy, and that clergy was a man. But actually, even, even sometimes church leaders who are hip and trendy, nobody would describe God first as hip and trendy. In fact, I've had people say to me, uh, oh, I'm not going to come to your church because you're anti-women. I think, well, you don't really know what we're like. But the reputation... Anti-women, but here, uh, here's a, a leader of a hip and trendy move, uh, church, you know, right on, who often would say, "We're not like that church." Not mentioning us, but mentioning the network that we that we were originally part of. They'd say, "Oh, you know, we're really in favour of women." But I remember him saying to me, "I believe in women leaders, but I've never found a woman who's good enough to lead." And they say that God first is sexist. This is a network church that says we're right on and hip and trendy about women. But us as a network and church, we always get slammed on that we're not. So although I want to apologise for how we have been, I also want to appeal to you and say maybe it's not the full picture. But that isn't really how people view God first isn't really the issue. What happens is how male views of, of, of men and women filter down. So I'm not going to mention where this was from or who it's from, but uh, I could tell you time and place and person. But I, the, there was a situation where a place where I was ministering, where one man would beat his wife on a regular basis and sexually abuse his children. And at times he would shout at them, you need to submit to me because I am the man in this family. He's now in prison. Rightly so. Let's just get it clear as we step out of this. Sexism is a real problem 
uh, issues about men and women are a real issue and we need to tread carefully and wisely. But let me underline that any church or church leader that believes that men are not equal with women should read their Bible more. And you think, what? No, no, I thought if you read the Bible more, you'd find out that actually it doesn't say that. But it never, ever, ever says that men are not equal with women. It might say other things as we walk forward, but it doesn't say that. So let's, the very first time when, when, when humanity is introduced in the Bible with these radical words, and we go here often as a church, Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make mankind, or man sometimes, in our image, oh, that's sexist. Let's make mankind in our image and in our likeness so that they may rule. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and rule over it. There's no other Near East or biblical account of the creation of men and women, where women are even mentioned in the Near East. The fact that the Bible mentions that men and women are fully in the image of God, that they both rule in the image of God, that they're both made in the image of God, in the image and likeness, actually the Bible radically does that. It states right at the beginning that men and women are made in the image of God, and they're equal in that sense. There's nothing in the passage when men and women are created that says that men are better than women. There's nothing that says men are more in the image of God than women, that men are more intelligent than women, that men are more spiritual women uh, than women, that men are better leaders than women, or obviously women are better pronunciation than men, or anything, or that men are less emotional, or or this, or whatever whatever you want to say. There's nothing that says that. There's nothing that says that women can't be leaders because they're emotional. There's nothing that says that women can't do this or do that, or that women are stupid or whatever. But you can read, actually, uh, articles from scientists, we talked about it's science against God, from a hundred years ago, where they said science has proved that not only blacks are stupid, but women are stupid as well. Science isn't always on the right side of the argument either. Genesis 1.27 lays down the central tenet of women's right that must not be overlooked, the equality of men and women. That they carry their divine image, men and women, their, it's their it, dignity, their inherent value, their giftedness, right through employment opportunities and right to vote. Women are equal with men. So then you might ask the question then, just hold that thought, what, why do we have men and women? If you ask an evolutionist why we have men and women, that's an interesting question, isn't it? Now, the obvious snigger (laughs) is, well, of course, because sex is really good fun. That's obviously why we have men and women, isn't it? And obviously, you know, fit together really well. So, you know, there must be a sense where we design for each other and sex is really good fun. It's obvious, isn't it? But think about it. Why do we have gender? Why is the male and female at all? And I, I read this, uh, you can find, I could have found you a hundred quotes like this. this. is a quote from a guy called Mike Wright, uh, Ridley, who's uh, an evolutionary biologist. He wrote this in 2001 in his book, The Competitive Gene. Evolutionary biologists are much teased for ob- their obsession of why sex exists. We answer in an amused mate, isn't it obvious? Joking apart, he says, it's far from obvious. Sex or gender is the puzzle that's not yet been solved. Nobody knows why it exists. 
you can make evolutionary speculation for it, that it's good to share genetic material. But actually the cost and energy expended as a male in any kind of species of trying to get your sexual, uh, your genetic material propagated by a female is, is quite time consuming, as you may know if you're not married. And certainly don't try and do it if you're not married, but that's another talk for next week, isn't it? Okay, so, you know, why is, there, why is the male and female? Let me suggest that the Bible gives us a hint right there. <laughs> let me suggest that there's, there's a hint right there. Because the beginning says, let, <laughs> let us. Why is there an us? I think there's something about God that's an us. And you think, oh, I always hear this from you, but it's so much of what we believe comes down from who God is. So God is an us. He's a loving trinity, a unity of three, a triunity. He's a one plus one plus one equals one. One plus one plus one equals one. That's the, tr- that's the maths of the Trinity. What is the maths of marriage? Just make sure you know this. <laughs> one plus one equals one. Not two. One. It's interesting, isn't it? There's something there. Right at the very heart of man and woman, that there's something there about one plus one equals one. The Trinity is a unity of three persons. Now, a bit of theology. Each person is fully God. So the Father is fully God and has all the attributes of God. The Spirit is fully God and has all the attributes of God. And I missed the sun out, didn't I? And the Son, sorry Jesus. And the Son has, is fully God and has all, he's supposed to go Father, Son, Spirit. I don't know why I'm Spirit, but, you know, every, each person in the Trinity has all the attributes of God, yes? It's not meant to be a comedy. <laughs> I'm doing my best though. Ooh. Yeah, but each person, you, you, are we with that? We're good with that. Yet, the Father is not the Son or the Spirit. So they are like each other in value and, and, and attributes in every single way, but the Father's not the Spirit or the Son. Do you, you understand? You know, you can go. This, so, so there's this diagram. Non-est means is not. And est means... Because it's fancy, isn't it? And est means is. Yeah? So the peta, est dias, the Father is God. But the peta, non-est filios, the Father is not the Son. Yeah, you get that? Okay, great. So that's the little, it's called the shield of the Trinity. But why? How do we know who's who? How do we know who's who? How do we know who the Father is? Equal in value and worth. Equal in attributes and gifting in every single way, fully God. How do we know who's who? We know who's who, not because the Father gave birth to the Son. That's heresy. The Son has always been the Son. Father's always been the Father. Spirit's always been the Spirit. But because it says something, and get this, about their different roles and relationships to each other. You know who the Father is by how he relates to the Son and the Spirit. And you know who the Son is by how he relates to his Father and the Son. That's how you, uh, theologians call it the economy of the Trinity. Economy being what they do. There's something really important, isn't it? That actually how you know who these people are by their roles. But are they equal? Ooh, everyone's thinking now. Yes, they are. But they do they appear to have different roles. I haven't time to unpack it with you. But actually, the Father does different things to the Son, which who does different things to the Spirit in this Trinity. 
So give me a couple of things. We can debate these. Uh, We could debate these another time, but let's just pick them. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. There's a sense where the Father's initiating and the Son's following. What about this one? Right in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus is praying to his Father before the cross, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, but yet not my will, but yours be done. Jesus defers to his Father. It's always that way. You can't find an example where the Father defers to the Son. There's a kind of order of within the Trinity, but the Trinity is the example of this incredible loving community. The Father delights and pours his love and life into the Son, and the Son takes his lead from the Father and willingly submits to his Father's will, even going to the cross. Paul describes it in what is a very, whoa, potentially explosive passage, not because we get upset about what it says about God, but what it says about men and women. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13. I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man. And the man is the head of the woman and God, or God the Father, is the head of Christ. That's interesting, that word. Head suddenly puts it in a bit of a difficult position, doesn't it? Now, there is a discussion that says, oh, well, that means source, like the head of the River Thames. But actually, every, time, every use, Greek usage of that word head means the one who has authority. And even that word authority sticks in the throat, doesn't it, 21st century society. And before you think, yeah, I knew he was a sexist, he just said those things at the beginning just to soften us up. No, I'm trying to make a point actually about what is true, but yet doesn't imply inequality. There's a parallel here, isn't there, between the relationship between God and Christ and the husband and the wife. Some people would say, well, the thing about Paul is this stupid first century uh, sexist simpleton who didn't know any better. And now we've been enlightened now, we should ignore him. We don't do that with the Bible in this church. Some do. Well, Paul doesn't know what's going on, even though he wrote the Bible, he doesn't know what's going on. But what we're saying is we have to take what Paul says seriously. In fact, Paul is not a sexist. He writes the passage that says, in Christ there's no male or female, Jew nor Greek, slave or free. He writes the egalitarian passage of all egalitarian passages. He's the one who has uh, uh, women in his apostolic team. He has women who preach. He has women who do all those things if you dig around. So Paul is not a sexist simpleton. In fact, he's very countercultural. But yet he says this. There's a headship and related submission between Christ and the Father, between Christ and the church, between a man and a woman. Let's just pick out some more bits here. So let's, let's go back to Genesis. So Eve, Eve is introduced with words that seem very sexist. Eve is introduced on the scene with these words. It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable helper for him. Suitable helper. Turn to the person next to you or the person sitting around you and say, what do you think of when you think of a suitable helper? Anybody want to play? Let's, uh, in fact, let's straw pull. 
Who feels suitable helper feels dangerously sexist? I'm there. Feels dangerously sexist. The man's on his own. I'm going to make a suitable helper for him. Yeah? If, I, if you were to drive home in the car, if I drive home in the car to Naomi and said, I'm glad you're my suitable helper. She might misunderstand what's being said. Let's unpick it a little bit. Now, at first reading, it does seem loaded with master and servant. And words like head seem loaded with toxic ideas of abusive authority and doormat-like submission. Do you not agree? Yeah? It does, doesn't it? But actually, if you look at the word that's translated helper, actually that word is used elsewhere of God in Psalm 119, sorry, 115, verse 9 to 11. God is described as a helper. Well, that makes you feel a bit better, doesn't it, girls? God's described as a helper. Nobody could say he's a subservient, less than equal person. What about this? In the New Testament, it's funny, Jesus echoes, it's not good for man to be alone because he says at the end, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another, say the word, helper. Sometimes comforter, sometimes advocate, but the word is the same root. One's in Greek in here, one's in Hebrew in the other one. I'm going to make you another helper who will be with you forever. The spirit of truth, oh, it's God. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The word helper is one who comes alongside. Now it's interesting. Let's just unpack a little bit of this coming alongside. What does, what does Jesus describe himself in the, in the first chapter of John? He describes himself as the one who is at the Father's side. It's like, it's the same thing. A helper at the Father's side. He's one at the Father's side. Just as the Spirit comes to us at our side. And it's interesting if you work with that, actually, where does Eve come from in the story? She, a rib or part, I don't know if it says a rib, but she comes from his side. She's part of him. Comes from his side. And then what happens is God, while Adam sleeps, God makes Eve uh, uh, as a, a woman, whether that's metaphorical or whether that's actually what happened, I'm not going to fight you that one today. But actually, that then they come back together. And it says, one plus one, come back together to make one. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother. It's interesting, a man has to do the leaving. Women find it less hard to leave their mothers. Men have to leave their father and mother and be united to each other. But also, where does the church come from? I've said this before, but I quite like it as a little bit of game, really. Jesus is pierced, isn't he? Adam's put to sleep. Jesus is what on the cross? He dies. Sometimes sleep is called die in the Bible. He, he sleeps, he dies, and from his side, they pierce his side that says he's really dead, from his death comes blood and water. Out of his very side... The church is formed. The church is formed so that Jesus and us can become one. There's a lot going on here. There's a lot going on here rather than who makes the tea in the family relationship. But interesting, this word suitable goes even further. The word suitable literally means according to the opposite of him. So when you say, guys, when you say uh, that woman is fit... 
Same word, suitable, fit. When you say that woman is fit, what you are saying is, she's opposite to me and, and according to me. Yeah? What you're saying is there's, there might be a really good congruency here. There might be a really good togetherness here. But the word, obviously, we don't use it like that, do we? I mean, or whatever it means these days, I don't know. <laughs> but was I doing so well? I was doing so well. Let me just pause at this moment. If you think that actually this is not a dangerous subject, what's on at the local cinema? What is on at the local cinema? Let's ask the question, is Fifty Shades of Grey a sexist movie or not? Hands up if you think Fifty Shades of Grey, don't go see it. Fifty Shades, oh, you, some of you have already been. <laughs> Outrageous, quick. Um, who thinks it's a sexist movie? It's about men dominating women, isn't it? So I'm told. Honestly, I haven't been to see it. Nor have I read the book. But somebody's told the women, oh, that's really empowering. It's very difficult to walk this line without... Uh, a friend of mine once described some of these passages as like walking along the floor with nitroglycerine. If one little trip or one little slip, it all blows up in your face. And, and the truth is, when it comes to talking about men and women, the issue is so loaded. How do you walk through it? I make a throwaway comment and suddenly I'm, I'm a Victorian sexist. You probably think, well, that's true. Anyway, okay, where were we? Back to that. Yeah, so, 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 but actually, so you've got this sense of togetherness, this sense of unity, this sense of loving connection, that the Bible does call that headship and submission, but it's not headship and submission as we talk about it. It's not this toxic, abusive, dominating headship and submission. It's a loving congruency. It's a loving togetherness. It's a loving connection. But we don't see that in human relationships. I was trying to find out, does anybody know, a little quick who, I don't even know who did I couldn't find it. Who coined the phrase Battle of the Sexes? I thought it was a Shakespeare thing, obviously Tame Into the Shrew. I don't really know who coined that phrase. But, but we all know it's, it's there, isn't it? The Battle of the Sexes. Yeah? Men talk negative about women. Men abuse women. We've read the stats. Men dominate women. Women want to fight men. Well, I think, well, of course they do, because they've been, abo- and I think, oh, I can't understand. They've been abused and dominated. Why wouldn't they? But why has it gone wrong? There's something right at the beginning, isn't there, that, that's gone off. What's the first thing that happens with this beautiful man and woman couple, this Adam and Eve couple, what's the very first thing that happens to them? They're tempted to throw off God's headship. Thanks. God's headship. Take this fruit and you will be God. I'm not having God as my head. I am not submitting to him. Because he's the nasty, dominating, abusive one who's holding out. I mean, isn't that the lie? And what happens is that relationship between us and God goes, and what happens is this relationship goes. That God shows up and the man's already saying, this says to God, this woman, it's my wife here, but this woman that you gave me, she made me sin. He's already blaming her and distancing himself. They're supposed to be together, but there's already distance. And then God says to the woman this really funny verse. It says, your desire will be to your husband and he will rule over you. This is not Fifty Shades of Grey. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. 
The word desire is not sexual desire here. The word desire here is mastery. And the word rule talks about harsh, overbearing, and oppressive rule. You could read it like this. So it doesn't mean women, you're going to desire your husband sexually and he's going to treat you bad. Second part right, first part not right. What, what you really could read is your desire will be to master your husband and he will be harsh and overbearing and oppressive with you. Right there. Sin comes in, we throw off headship with God and the battle of the sexes begins. Right there, male headship becomes toxic and twisted. Female uh, uh, response to that becomes anything that's uh, response to that becomes an enemy of equality. So the very notion that men and women, I'm, I'm trying to get finished here, the very notion that men and women are different from each other raises all manner of accusations of sexism. But it's difficult, isn't it, to say a man is different from a woman is really, really a difficult one. Women make better fathers or men make better mothers. You'd actually say, well, actually, it's nothing to do. The only difference between us is our biological plumbing. There's nothing else. I don't think that's what it is. I think there's something about the the togetherness of us that actually we're, we're equal but different. And you can be different. You don't have to be the same to be equal. You can be equal or different. So here's a sexist passage for you. Ask her the question, is Paul being sexist or countercultural? Here's the explosive one. We're nearly getting done. Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church's body, for which he's saviour. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives, obey your husband. How does that feel? Pretty nasty, isn't it? Because if he's a harsh, overbearing, dominant one, it's pretty hard to obey him. But what does Paul say how the failure should be? should be like Jesus laying down your life for your wife. Is he being sexist or countercultural? Is he trying to push women into a corner where they have to submit and men into a position where they have to dominate? No. I think he's trying to say, look, I see in Corinth, I see the, the crazy messed up world of human society and sexuality. We need to put it back to what it was like before. We need to put it back to where there's a congruency and a togetherness and a love and that, that, that you lay down, men, lay down your life for, for your wife. Not abuse her and wife enjoy his love respond to it so call me a hard faced male chauvinist stuck in the male dominated world of Victorian England but I believe the Bible teaches you can have equality between men and women whilst having different roles Ephesians 5 does not teach the inequality of husbands and wives but they have different roles the Bible calls these roles headship and submission without notions of master and servant, without toxic ideas of abuse and authority, without doormat-like submission. But the reality is that makes the answer to our question, is the church sexist? Yes, because that's not how the world sees male and female relationships. Ephesians 5 does not teach that headship is not an authority role, but it teaches those who are in and under authority how they should act. At the Last Supper, the, the blokes are arguing about what? They argue who is the greatest. Jesus is about to go to the cross, die for the sins of the world, and they're arguing who's the best. 
Who's the greatest? They're arguing who's the top of the hierarchy, who's the most important. They want to be the head. They want to be, they're saying, could I be at your right hand? Who's the, he says, and then Jesus called them together and said, said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over their people. And their great ones exercise authority upon, upon, upon them. It shall not so be with you, for whoever is great amongst you be a servant. Is Jesus saying there should be no authority? No, he's saying, but if you have authority, you should do it like a servant. Jesus isn't banning authority, he's banning its arrogant self-abuse, gentlemen. Politicians. Jesus does what then? This is brilliant, I love this, and I've said it many times, I'm sure. In John, 3, John 13, 3 says, Jesus knew that the Father had put everything under his power. All authority, he says, is given to me. That he'd come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around them. If all authority in heaven and earth is given to you, what are you doing with it? What are you doing with it, ladies? Well, I'll overturn the status quo where men are, are, are dominators. That's what I'll do with it. Men, what are you doing? I'm going to, you know, Islamic State, Second World War, Russian Red Army coming into Berlin, raping women. What are you going to do with authority, men? Jesus says, this is what I'm going to do with authority. This is what you should do with authority. This is what I should do with headship, is I'm going to serve you. Jesus is our model of headship. Paul says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Headship means that Jesus loves and cares for you and me as his church, as his bride. On the cross, Jesus shows us what headship looks like. He takes the lead and lays down his life to serve and bless the other. Within marriage... A husband's role, not makes him better, but this is what he's asked to do, is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And when I feel the weight of that, I think, man, I am not. But yeah, wonderfully, Jesus is also our model of submission. Submission is the free and voluntary, not a sign of weakness. And he delights to do his Father's will. And as I've said, in the garden, he says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Let's finish with this thought. Paul writes a brilliant passage in Philippians 2. It gives us an idea about how we should honour the differences between men and women. It says this, Jesus, though in very nature God, what does that mean? He's like God in every way, fully equal with God did not consider, what's the word it uses, does anyone know? Equality with God, something to be grasped or used for his own advantage. But he humbled himself and became obedient servant even unto death. He's the archetypal submission. He's the archetypal female in that sense. What do men have to do? Go to the cross for your wife. Women, what do you have to do? Go to the cross for your husband. In other words, lay down your life. Lay down your life. Let me finish with this. Ben, do you want to come back? Love, I believe, 
is the foundation for what it means to be a man. Thank you, Elizabeth. (laughs) Carlos is nodding as well, so we're all in good places. Love is the foundation of what it means to be a man. To say that I'm strong and lay down my life for those that I've been given to care for. Wouldn't that be a different world than one we're in? And love is the foundation of submission. To say, I feel I am happy to be protected by you, to be led by you, to be connected with you, to be part of you. And I would say when the world and and radical feminism tries to take that away, I don't believe we end up in a better place. And when the church is pressured to take every distinction between men and women, I don't think we end up in a better place. I think we're just bringing the scramble to the top into the church. But we look at Jesus to say, it's not a scramble to the top. It's an emptying, servant-hearted, cross-shaped death. Drive to the bottom. It's not easy. But I would say that, that we want to make sure that when men and women, when they exercise leadership in this church, and we'll talk about more about that perhaps at another time, and when men and women, when they exercise relationship in marriage, Lord, we're saying, fill us with yourself. Fill us with yourself. Fill us with that love that takes us where actually the battle of the sexes never takes us. Text us to self-giving not taking or grasping. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.